0: Hi and welcome to Make Good, the podcast about yarn and knitting from scratch Supply Co. We're recording today in downtown Lebanon, New Hampshire, and we're really excited to be here. I'm Karen. And I'm Jessica. Today we are diving in to the overwhelming, mysterious world of buttons.
1: Oh, it's such a scary place. (laughs) Which
0: I will say, that perspective is very much
1: informed by owning a yarn shop. For real, it's so overwhelming, friends. It's been the great struggle of the last six years for us. (laughs) In the shop,
0: we have a very limited, we think very nice collection of buttons that we sell. We're going to say it's tightly curated. But on multiple occasions, prior to bringing in what we currently have, we have tried to order buttons in a more comprehensive way,
1: and it just gets out of hand so quickly. Part of the reason this is so difficult is that there are so many kinds of buttons And also there are so many kinds of you, (laughs) different feelings and thoughts and opinions about color and shape and aesthetic and size that you need for your particular project and quantity. It gets out of hand real quick, trying to anticipate what some knitter off the street coming into the shop might want. One time we tried to order buttons and thought, great, we're doing it. We're covering all the bases. I think there's something for everyone here. And then we stepped back and we looked at how many buttons we had put together. It was
0: out of control and we had been pretty sparing.
1: So you think you have problems choosing. (laughs) We are also problematic in that everything that we're looking at is supersized. So today we are going to talk about these lovely, useful, difficult to make choices about notions that make their way into your knit life. So as a knitter, if you have not ever made something that requires buttons, you might be thinking, what on earth would I even do with buttons, maybe besides a cardigan? (laughs) There are lots of different kinds of projects that call for buttons sometimes, cardigans being the most obvious. But there are also convertible pieces, like you might have a big wrappy shawl thing that has buttons along part of an edge. That allows you to connect them so now suddenly it's a poncho or some sort of wrap top. Those are always fun and kind of geometrically interesting. You might have a lovely pullover that you've knit for yourself that has a cute little keyhole neck that buttons at the back. Maybe you have mittens that have little convertible mitten flaps so you also have fingerless mitts but you need a way to secure that little flappy mitten top when you need to use your hands. Hats. Hats sometimes have buttons, either to secure them under your chin to keep you warm and cozy, or maybe they're decorative. Decorative buttons are certainly a thing. Rompers? And I'm not going to say just for babies, because grown-ups like rompers, too. (laughs) Like, there might be need for buttons on rompers or some sort of pant-type knitwear. You need to keep things in place, and buttons are helpful in doing that. And there's probably a whole bunch of other types of projects that require buttons too that I'm not even thinking about. So I wanted to talk a little bit about
0: the history of buttons because I don't know about anybody else, but when you look at a button that's on your pants or your shirt or your sweater or whatever, you never really think, how did this come to be here? Mm -hmm. But the first buttons that we have actual archaeological evidence are from the Bronze Age, and they would have been made out of pretty much what you would expect, bone, horn, wood, metal, or seashells. That one was a little bit of a surprise to me. And at that point, the buttons that were being used were largely decorative as opposed to doing any actual fastening. If you were like trying to keep your pants up or keep your shirt close to your body or whatever, you would have been using something like a belt or a pin or a brooch. A few examples of some very early buttons that are still hanging around. The very earliest one is from Mohenjo Daro, which is in Pakistan, and it's from the Indus Valley Civilization, and it's been dated to 2,600 years before the Common Era. And that is made of seashell. Super old and way to go least fragile seashell in history. <laughs> <laughs> Seashells are kind of magical. We also have an example of a button from a Neolithic tomb on Orkney in Scotland from, they think, between 2200 and 1800 years before the Common Era. It's made of something called albertite, which I had never heard of before, but is like a variation on asphalt. Oh, Interesting. We also have buttons from Bronze Age sites in ancient China and Rome. So here's the thing. We have buttons. We don't have buttonholes. What does that even mean? This is the narrative around the development of the button. So we do have some evidence that the Romans were using things like they would cut a slit into leather and then put a button through it on things like a satchel or on shoes but they could only do that with leather. They couldn't do it with fabric because the buttonhole hadn't been invented yet. The Greeks supposedly invented the button loop. They would just make like basically an eye cord or something woven and they would sort of attach it to the edge of the fabric of the garment. And that can do certain amounts of fastening. People are supplementing that with things like fibulae, which are basically fancy Roman safety pins. And they're using these sort of button loops to keep two edges of fabric together at like a shoulder, but it's hanging down. And then in the 13th century, crusaders come home. And in this particular case, they come home to Germany and they have brought technology with them. And it is buttonhole technology. And they've brought it from Turkey and they have brought it from Persia. And every single narrative I read was buttonholes were invented in Germany in the 13th century and they even included the after the crusaders brought this information home but 100% no credit given
1: that's so wild
0: <laughs> like historians come on yeah i'm sure there are other sources out there and sort of as a caveat i was looking at layman friendly sources and only in english and all that kind of stuff but it was still like really frustrating to keep reading that over and over and they took off like a house on fire people thought these were the greatest things ever so in 1250 in france the Button Makers Guild is established. And buttons as a whole become widely used as actual clothing fasteners throughout Europe over the next century or so. Because now that we have reinforced buttonholes in fabric, now garments can be figure fitting. Ah. Because you can actually get into them and you don't have to sew yourself into them. Like fashion wise, detachable sleeves, the height of fashion
1: Because you could button your sleeves onto your... I'm just having flashes of when I was in high school and those pants, those really ugly (laughs) plank pants were popular where you could zip off half of the leg. Yeah. So detachable sleeves, huh? How neat. Yeah, those were a big deal. And like
0: form-fitting bodices on women. There was a lot of boning happening in corsetry at that point. And it was such a problem that it started to be mentioned in churches. Churches were preaching against succumbing to the sins of the button. It's fracy stuff. (laughs) 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 That clothing fits too well and can be removed too easily. And so now they are functional, but they are also serving a decorative function. So there are a few examples that we've heard of, like King Francis I of France had a very famous meeting with King Henry VIII of England, and King Francis wore 13,600 mostly decorative buttons sewn onto the outside of his clothing. So
1: like the precursor to sequins is what you're telling me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So when I was hearing this, I was like, that's absurd. And then I looked over at my project bag, which is like covered in enamel pins. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, in 1620, the first Duke of Buckingham had a suit and cloak that was covered in diamond buttons. That's a look. And also probably really heavy. As per usual, the Puritans ruined everything. (laughs) Excessive button wearing
1: becomes a sin, but you can still have them on your clothes. (laughs) So only the necessary number of buttons. Let's not get flashy with them, is (laughs) what you're telling me.
0: There was something in the 17th century, and please excuse my French pronunciation, that's called la Guerre des Boutons, the War of the Buttons. And that was when a bunch of French tailors had invented a way to make buttons out of thread, kind of like a frog. They had wrapped little thread balls and you could use those as buttons. And the Button Makers Guild was having none of it. Ah. And they got a law passed saying
1: it was illegal to sell these thread buttons. I'm... I don't even know what to think about that. There's like textile notion turf wars happening. And
0: that wasn't enough. Not only is it illegal to sell these buttons and people are going to get fined, they want to imprison people and fine them for wearing them. That's a lot. Yeah. Fashion police. It was the fashion police. Ah! (laughs) Everyone's worst nightmare. Maybe French jail was full of people in thread buttons. Buttons are largely a handcraft at that point. They're like an artisanal object. In the 19th century, we start seeing them being mass-produced out of things like bone and metal. And that's where we get dorset buttons, which we actually learned how to make when we were in Scotland. They would have used like a cross-section slice of sheep horn. So just like a very small ring as the foundation, which is a very interesting way of using all the parts. But they are still being used very decoratively in the 19th century. Everybody started wearing these little like pearl shaped black jet buttons all over the outside of their clothing because that is how Queen Victoria dressed herself when she was in mourning after Prince Albert died. And so just sticking a bunch of little black pearls all over your outfit was the thing to do. Fancy fashion. And then in the 20th century, you start having the ability to do buttons with molds and things like that. So we start seeing a lot of things that we would maybe expect to find in a shop, like the picture
1: or novelty buttons. And that's where we are. I bet the introduction of plastics in general kind of rocked button world as well, right? Oh, yeah. Because you can kind of do anything. <laughs> you definitely can. And no one will put you
0: in jail for it, probably.
1: No, let's, let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's super interesting. We as knitters today, as contemporary button knitters, have a lot of choice. And you can tell it's kind of evolved and changed. If you have people in your life who have button collections, or you yourself have one, you might have some really old, interesting pieces available to you. If you don't have a button collection, now is the time I'm going to suggest that you start one. Because everybody loves a button jar.
0: I was going to say step one is getting one of those cookie tins.
1: Oh, the Danish butter cookie tin. Yep. Yep. (laughs) You have to eat all of the Danish butter cookies Mm -hmm. and feel joyful. No more cookies. You know, this cookie eating, very emotionally draining. And then once the tin is empty, you just start plunking buttons in there. (laughs) And I mean this seriously, if you are out and about at like a fiber event or some sort of artisan fair or a cool vintage shop and you see buttons that you love and financially you can, grab those buttons. Because if you don't, you will never find them again and they will haunt you. Yes, because the next project you make, those will have been the perfect buttons for it, and you won't be able to get them. So just set yourself up for success and start collecting the beautiful pieces that you find when you're out and about. Another thing, speaking of collecting and being prepared, is that if you are going to knit a project that will require a button, particularly a functional button, make some sort of note to yourself. Could be on paper in your little project notebook or it could be in your phone. But just somewhere, keep the information that lets you know what size button the pattern designer recommends for your project. Because if you are anything like me, you have definitely knit a cardigan. And some number of years later, that cardigan still has no buttons. Yeah. Sometimes the buttons just don't happen for me. (laughs) But if I had access to information about what size button I needed for a project and I were somewhere where I had access to buttons that I liked, I could quick reference that and say, oh, I need five-eighths of an inch buttons for that reunion cardigan that never got buttons attached to it. I'm going to get these because your buttonholes are the size that they are once you've knit them. (laughs) One more thing that I would like to give you is the little tip about buttons before we dig into some nuts and bolts of using them in projects is remember, buttons are not forever. And what I mean by that is sometimes you choose buttons for a project and you wear that project for a long time and then you're bored. These are some tired buttons. I'm just not feeling this anymore. You know what? Don't neglect that sweater. Don't stop wearing those fingerless mitts. Get out your little snips and cut those buttons off. Stick them in your button jar and go find some new ones. It's like a super easy, quick way to give your well-loved projects a glow-up, a makeover. It's the equivalent of swapping out the hardware on your kitchen cabinets. Sometimes you just need a new drawer pull to make your kitchen life so much better. Okay, knitter friends, you're making a project and you need to choose some buttons. Where do you even begin, one might wonder.
0: You hope that your local yarn shop has done a more selective job than we
1: did at at least filtering out some of the options for you. Your aesthetic options are endless. There are so many choices, and this is where your spoiled-for-choice quandary stems from. So many colors and shapes. You kind of need the size that you need. But beyond that, you could kind of go in any direction. Material is a good place to start. Karen mentioned lots of materials in the History Corner, but a lot of those materials are still available today. You can get buttons that are made of wood. Bamboo buttons are popular. Plastic buttons are ubiquitous. You can get buttons that are made of leather or bone or antler. We learned about seashell.
0: If anyone comes across asphalt buttons, buy them. And let us know. Yeah, but I'm putting a question mark at the
1: end of that sentence. (laughs) There are also porcelain and ceramic-like stoneware-style buttons and metal buttons as well. Thinking about what type of material you want your buttons to be is not just an aesthetic choice, because that material will impact your project care. Some of those materials will require that you hand wash your garment that you might have otherwise been able to put in your machine. For example, I think that if you have a ceramic or porcelain button, it's hand wash only forever. Even if you get told they're machine washable, the water is not the problem. It is the clunking around (laughs) of the actual button itself inside the metal basin of your washing machine. So you run a really high risk of cracking and breaking those buttons. You can definitely block your project. For sure, they can get wet, but don't throw them in the washing machine where they're going to get plonked up against the side of the metal. Don't put your ceramic buttons in the rock tumbler. I also think that putting metal buttons in the washing machine is not a super great idea because, depending on what type of metal it is, there may be some sort of finish on it that will be impacted by it clonking against the metal in your washing machine, or you're going to have to deal with tarnishing issues any number of things, so I think that those are better suited to hand washing. Also, if they're heavy and your wool is more prone to stretching when it's wet, it's got the potential to distort the points on your garment where the buttons are attached. So be gentle with those. Treat them with care. Other materials, like wood or bamboo or plastic, bone, antler, Those things can get wet and they're not going to have a lot of impact either from the water in the washing machine or the metal drum. They're probably okay to machine wash if your wool or other yarn type is washable. But hand washing is always the most gentle option for all of your hand knits. Another thing to consider when you're looking at those materials is, is this button going to be heavy? Maybe one button on its own won't be too heavy on the sweater. But if your sweater calls for 10 buttons, it might be a lot. You might need a more lightweight option for closing that. You don't want your fabric to sag and stretch. You don't want hangy, droopy buttons. It's just kind of sad.
0: And on things that aren't cardigans, too, if you were using it as a fastener for like a shawl or something like that, you're going to end up with that part of your shawl always falling off your shoulder. It needs to fit into the ergonomics, weight
1: balance of your finished project. It needs to complement your textile. <laughs> That's right. Another thing that I implore you to consider is, can you get more of these buttons? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you ask? Because irreplaceable missing buttons are the saddest buttons. <laughs> <laughs> and often you have experience with them when you only get the exact number of buttons that you need for a project. So if you need six buttons for your romper, maybe get seven. Mm -hmm. That's why dress shirts have extra buttons sewn in down at the hem at the bottom of the button band. So when you inevitably pop one off in the subway and they go flying in between the platform and the train and you cannot retrieve it, you can just put a new button on and it will match the ones that you already have. So now that you have thought about some things, as you've chosen your buttons for your project, I would like to bring us to a controversial button issue. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And that is how to attach your button to your hand knit. Um, Safety pins and glue. No more controversy. Please don't do those things. Attaching your button to your garment is going to require sewing. I know that's the S word to some of you, (laughs) but it's okay. It's only a couple of stitches and you can totally do this. Don't be intimidated. Here's the controversial part. I am going to recommend to you what I think is the best way. And I'm just saying that with all of the authority that I claim for myself, which is (laughs) in the real world, none. But the best way to attach a button is to not use your yarn. I know you want to use your yarn. It's already right there with your project. Don't use your yarn. Use sewing thread. Yes. I think that sewing thread will be nine times out of ten a stronger option. Sewing thread is cheap. It comes in lots of different colors. So, if you want it to match the color of your project or you want it to match the button that it will be attaching, those things are all options for you. But if you sew your buttons on with sewing thread, it's going to be strong and secure, and it's not going to add a lot of bulk at that point where your button is. Versus using your yarn, you're not going to be able to stitch through as many times because it's thicker. You need to totally avoid things like woolen spun yarn because that's more prone to breaking. It's a more fragile yarn construction than like a tightly plied super wash yarn. You want to give your button a fighting chance of staying on your knitwear and not just falling off when you like catch it on a doorway or something because the yarn has broken. If you do choose to use your yarn, I'm going to tell you that there's more sewing involved because you're going to need to leave long ends rather than sewing thread where you can just kind of knot it close to the back of your fabric and then snip it. You'll need to leave long ends and weave them in. Two ends. You have to weave in two ends. It's twice as much sewing. This is the strongest
0: Jessica has ever tried to convince anyone not to do anything. She's threatening them with weaving in more
1: ends. That's right. Just (laughs) use the sewing thread. And if you have landed on using buttons that are a little bit heavy and you want some security and you're trying to keep your fabric kind of consistent and not so stretchy from the weight of those buttons, you can reinforce that point on your garment. You can put a scrap of fabric on the backside of it or felt, a little piece of denim or something. Other woven fabrics, like a ribbon piece, would be good. And you'll stitch into not just your knit stitches, but also that little fabric reinforcement point to give it some stability. Alternately, if you have extra buttons, because you do have a butter cookie tin, you can just pick out some small kind of complementary button to stitch on the backside, like the inside of your button band or button contact point, And that will reinforce where your big functional button is attached.
0: Do you do the thing when you're sewing on a button, you wrap the thread behind the button?
1: To make like a shank? Yes. I don't do that. I know a lot of people do. And if you need a little bit of room between where your functional button sits and your fabric, like if your fabric's kind of bulky, I think that's a good way to do it. Because it's a secure join, but also gives you room to wedge that second piece of fabric under there. But I don't because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I have strong feelings about sewing thread, but not strong feelings about shanks. I like to
0: use shanks with my buttons. I felt like that was one of those things I didn't know about for a long time. So you would sew buttons on, not even necessarily knit stuff, just like the button fell off my pants and you're sewing it back on and you're like, it's never really the same. And it was because I was small handwriting tension, sewing it to the fabric. And then I was like, this is super annoying to try to actually use as a button.
1: That might be the thing because I don't have the small, tiny handwriting. (laughs) My stitching, whether it's hand stitching or knitting, tends to be a little bit
0: less intense. So what if you want to fasten something and you just don't want to
1: use a button? If buttons are not for you, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) There are alternatives. You have other options. So first of all, not everything that says it needs a button actually needs a button. You could just let that cardigan or shawl or whatever live its life being free and unencumbered. Alternately, you could use things like shawl pins. Shawl pins are great ways to wedge pieces of fabric together. There are also notions, accessories, made by people in the industry that are specifically for securing hand-knit sections together without the impermanent permanence of a button. There's a designer that you might be familiar with. It's Jewel Designs. And she makes great shawl pins, but also screw-in closures are what she calls them. And there's a lot of leather and like heavy metal rings involved, and little blunt screw points, so you can attach sections of shawl or laps of fabric, kind of in any configuration. You can take that rectangle wrap and turn it into a convertible piece because the peg, the actual screw post itself, just fits in between the stitches of your knitting, and then is secured on. The the back side, and as long as you can unscrew it, it will come right back out.
0: Those are really smart, and it's one of the things where knit fabric has kind of a leg up over machine milled sewing fabric. Your knit fabric does have a bunch of tiny little built in potential holes all over it.
1: hmm. Secret buttonholes. There's also another Notion accessory designer. They're Canadian, and they're called Pearl and Hank, and they make holeless buttons. These are a little bit differentiated from the screw enclosures, though they work with a screw post because they aesthetically look like a button. It's just like a flat circular leather piece that the screw post is mounted off of. There's no additional hardware aesthetic. But those are really neat, and you could use them with actual buttonholes too, if you wanted to. You have many, many options. They're super cute. And another thing that I think people don't think about a lot for their hand knits, and it's kind of vintagey. Sweater clips are really fun. Sweater clips are just like little chains that have alligator clip pieces on either end, and you use them to hold the front panels of your cardigan or your v-neck shirt or anything together so you've got a little bit more closure and coverage. I used to have a really excellent one that was just all rhinestones. It was very blingy and super cute, and I'm sad that I lost it. Oh, no. Like so many buttons. (laughs) It has gone out of my life. So we hope you know a little bit more about buttons now. They're still kind of mysterious. They're definitely hard to pick, but they're super fun and can be really cute. We want everyone to get excited about them because we think buttons are great. So, what's on your needles, Jessica? So, I'm still working on my Only Ocean shawl by Sylvia McFadden, and it's coming along swimmingly. She who would pun would pick a pocket. <laughs> How about you, Karen? What's on your needles? I'm working on my sunshine
0: on my shoulders. I feel like the main thing I'm doing right now, though, is procrastinating on my knit-along because I still haven't picked a project. And so mostly I'm just browsing Ravelry. Like that's my knitting time is I'm just looking for projects. There's too many good cable options.
1: And now that we're two weeks into the knit-along, it's kind of time to make a move. (laughs) But also, you know what? It's one of our knit-alongs, so it's kind of never too late to join it. Whatever. (laughs) There's no pressure. I'll get there when I get there. So this week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Somebody wrote to us and specifically wants to talk to Karen. So, hey, Karen, are you ready for a letter? (laughs) (laughs)
0: I'm in trouble. Let's do it.
1: This week our letter comes from Nikki. Hi Nikki. I read your bios on Instagram and I have a question for Karen. I love cozy mysteries too. Oh hooray! Do you have any recommendations? I'm having trouble finding my next one to read or listen to while knitting. Oh my gosh yes
0: okay. So if you're not familiar with what a cozy mystery is it's basically a mystery story. It's usually not going for like sensationalism. It's not like true crime where they're getting into the sort of details of something unpleasant. It's usually a story where often a woman goes to some kind of small community. She's in a village somewhere. It's like the setup to a Hallmark movie. Uh And often they're themed and often they are series. And everybody in it is pretty likable, usually except for the victim of the crime. They like to kind of help you out in that way. That's a little weird a lot of like characters and characters and like this woman, she's not a real investigator. She's like an acupuncturist or she's like a veterinarian or something. And then she happens to overhear something and then she's like gossiping with the postal carrier and she overhears something else that lets her solve the mystery. Oh, wild. Yeah. I really enjoy them. Growing up, I read a lot of Dick Francis books. He's not really a cozy mystery writer, but he's kind of marginal. If you're not familiar with his books, not all of them have held up to time. But he does all of his mysteries set in, like, horse racing world. Huh. And then Lillian Jackson Braun, who wrote cozy
1: mysteries where there were always cats involved. (laughs) Cats feel like they fit the cozy theme. I think cats and tea.
0: Yes. Lots of tea. Oh, so that's the other thing about a lot of cozy mysteries, is there's often a recipe at the end. All of the ones that I have to suggest, there are audiobook versions as well. I haven't listened to all of the audiobook versions, so I can't attest to the quality of the audiobook. On the ones that are knitting-themed, there's often a pattern at the back instead of a recipe, and I think that's really cute. That's pretty fancy. (laughs) That's appealing. The knitting-themed ones, there's a really good series by Peggy Earhart, and it's the Knit and Nibble Mystery series, and it's not super romance-focused. A lot of those do have that sort of like hallmark, she bumps into somebody working at a tree farm kind of thing, (laughs) like I guess a Christmas tree farm that makes more sense. That particular series isn't really heavy on the romance, so depending on how you feel about that. There's also a woman named Sally Goldenbaum who has written multiple knitting-themed series. There's the Seaside Knitters mystery series that's really good, and then the Seaside Knitters Society series, which comes after Maggie Sefton has another knitting-themed mystery series, and it's just a knitting mystery series is the name, and there are 16 total books in that one. Those are pretty good. I really enjoy them. A lot of them are set in yarn shops. I found one that was themed around cruel work. That's very specific. Yeah. There's also a new one that has recently started. I only just learned about, and it looks really good, but I haven't actually read, by a woman named Allie Pleiter. And it's a riverbank knitting mystery, and there's only two books in the series so far. And then in non-knitter-themed cozy mysteries, Alexander McCall Smith is a well-known one. The number one ladies detective agency is fantastic, if you haven't ever read that. I will say the mysteries themselves, you've solved it. (laughs) You're two paragraphs in, and you're, you're pretty clear, but they're still really good. And that one does have actually a really charming audiobook version. If you like historical fiction, I really enjoyed the Heathcliff Lennox series by Karen Menowin, which is set in the 1920s and kind of boops around to some different locations. This is another one. I didn't know that it existed. It's by Alexia Gordon, and it's called The Gethsemane Brown Mysteries. The main character in it is a musician who moves from America to Ireland to teach music, and ghosts help her solve the mystery.
1: Very fun.
0: And then if you haven't ever read Agatha Raisin by M.C. Beaton, it's a very tongue-in-cheek, self-aware Agatha Christie, like set in the Cotswolds, very funny, really good. I'm going to link all of the series that I mentioned in the show notes.
1: They're so cute. They're just fun. Yay! (laughs) Thank you for that question. Well, one last thing before we let you all go. We are two weeks into our summer knit-along, and it's almost summer. so like a week away from summer, and we are knitting cabled projects. It's exciting to see the things that are cropping up on Instagram. We love following along with you. You should keep posting pictures, and remember the hashtag that you need to be using so we can see them is hashtag make good cables. Yes, we love it.
0: All right, I think that's it for us this week. You can find us anywhere you get your audio podcasts. You can rate or review us to help other knitters find us. You can follow us on Instagram at makegoodpod. You can go to our website, makegoodpod.com, where you can find all of our episodes and show notes and transcripts. And great, big, huge,
1: heartfelt thank you to our Patreon supporters. Y'all are awesome and amazing, and we love you. You're the best. You can send us letters to Scratch at scratchsupplyco.com.
0: That's how you find out about cozy mysteries <laughs> and all of your knitting things. Someone asked me about John Franklin. I have some thoughts. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.